Vinyl Crisis. On LA's west side, a group of avid and devoted vinyl collectors scour the remaining handful of locally owned record shops for the rarest of original vinyl to bring you music you won't hear on any other radio platform. None of it is digital. This is how music was meant to be enjoyed. This is Vinyl Crisis. Ben. How you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for the Eddie Hazel ramp up to our show this week. Yeah, man. Well, look, I had so much fun uh, last week with you talking about the Beatles. I figured uh, no time like the present to to start the dance again and do what we do best, which is play some music this time. Well, I appreciate it. And I know you're gaming the system and actually playing vinyl. So kudos to you. Well, we're trying. We're doing what we can. Uh, you know, we, we hope the uh, algorithm gods are kind to us. Um, we have a great show uh, planned for today. We are playing Eddie Hazel, who recently reissued his wonderful solo LP from 1977. Um, and of course, without any introduction, this is California Dreaming. But Vic, any, any, you want to tell anyone why we're listening to California Dreaming? What's the relevant of that? relevance of that today you know what you're the setup man and you're the pitch man for vinyl crisis so i'm gonna let you wow our audience with that <laughs> i knew you would um so originally written by the mums and puppers uh this is california dreaming which holds a very special place in the hearts of anyone who's stepped toe in california but of course uh particularly around the laurel canyon music scene which I figured we could do a, a worse thing than feature the music from the, this place um, on our show today, Vic. You want to want to tell our, our three listeners what um, what the Laurel Canyon music scene stood for? You you actually uh, lived there for a while, setting up a studio, right? I did. I lived, I breathed, and I managed a music studio from some rather prominent uh, European artists. And uh, to live and breathe Laurel Canyon even 30, 40, 50 years after its heyday, you understand how seminal that place is, not only to Southern California or to California, but really to the greater good of the evolution of music, specifically, you know, folk music. And when I think of these meccas of music that really redefined and probably got a lot of our parents pregnant. I think of places like the Haight-Ashbury. I think of places like Memphis. And I definitely think Laurel Canyon because basically everybody we're going to be talking about cohabitated there and created together. And so it's really this rich place that to this day, 2022, you can't help but feel like you're part of something special, even just walking up all those really old, ancient, curvy roads. Yeah, it's pretty special. When I first came to LA eight, nine years ago now, 
it was very high up on my list of things to do. And I know that, um, <clears throat> you know, other folks that come visiting, uh, anyone who's been aware of the Woodstock and the end of the 60s going into the 70s music, music, music movement in California will know that so many wonderful artists inhabited um, this little strip of road. As you said, it's a little hill, windy road that bridges the kind of areas of, of Hollywood and Beverly Hills and crosses over into the valley. Um, so whenever you hear about uh, people talking about going over the hill, it might, might even come from this particular hill. But there are three or four canyons. Laurel Canyon is definitely the most picturesque and has the most music history. And uh, we're going to just do uh, We're going to run through lots of music today. I'm very excited about it because we're doing it on vinyl uh, on the format we love best. Uh, we're talking about it, and um, Vic, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna play a little blast of music here, and I want you to tell us what we just heard. You got it. I caught you knocking at my cellar door. I love you, baby. Can I have some more? Now, I don't want to spend too too much time with the music for for some obvious reasons, but um, this is the one and only Neil Young. Vic. Tell me about this album, what it means to you, and I'll play a couple of cuts from it. Well, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear the needle and the damage done, I think of uh, a real human being more than a singer songwriter and i feel like even really early i think the song dropped in like 72 73 and it was written for his buddy from uh crazy horse that was dealing with heroin addiction what sticks out is how active or how large of an activist he's always been with his music um and then the second thought is it's hard for me to look at this album and say I have one song that I like more than the other. They're all phenomenal. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, bizarrely, it's still an album you can pick up dirt cheap in the uh, in the thrift stores of LA. You, you see copies of this thing showing up. Um, but Harvest by Neil Young, what a seminal record. Um, Hard to pick your favorite cut, though, right? Like you just said. Absolutely. And one of the great things about you bringing Vinyl Crisis back is actually helping me listen to music that now isn't very often heard on certain streaming platforms. And as a result, you have to go through some little cave or closet or a closet within a cave in your own house or a garage to find certain albums. And you start reading liner notes again. And, you know... Harvest was great, but Harvest also pays off with the circularity roughly 20 years later when he released Harvest Moon, which I think is a continuation of this first album. And you know me, I'm always a year or two off with my dates. But when I think of this album, I, I feel like it's incredible, not only from a songwriting point of view, but he also recorded with like the London Symphony Orchestra. He's got Stray Gators on it. Uh, more telling as well is the live vocals that he has with his buddies, David Crosby and Stephen Stills. So it's really priceless, right? And where do you go bad with an album that has Harvest, Heart of Gold, Are You Ready for the Country, An Old Man, Alabama, and The Needle and The Damage Done? And that's just half the record. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny actually because we could have done this as a real history lesson and done things a little bit more chronologically than this, but we've just dived straight into Neil. Um, everything else kind of hangs off that, and and as you as you'll discover if you don't know about the Laurel Canyon artists, they all hung out, they all wrote music together, they all appeared on each other's records. Um, but starting with a man like Neil seems appropriate somehow. Well, it's appropriate, and it's the perfect metaphor for two guys that are spinning records to each other uh, during a pandemic. And what's also very fortuitous about the Laurel Canyon history is Neil Young's real career starts with Buffalo Springfield, and he had a chance meeting on Sunset Boulevard, which is what, maybe a mile, a mile and a quarter down from the little shop, the only deli uh, that leads up to Laurel Canyon. And that's where he met Stephen Stills and Richie Foray, and that's how Buffalo Springfield met so i love the randomness and the the lack of order for our dialogue because laurel canyon seemed to have a lot of that and it was like this perfectly chaotic place that worked just perfectly it was like it's like when you go into a psychiatrist's office or a therapist and they have those five little aluminum balls that just keep bouncing back and forth. It's like the perfect cadence and the timing. It might seem like one's bouncing harder or louder, but they're perfectly in sync and it mesmerizes you. When I think Laurel Canyon, I think Sunset Boulevard back to that era and what it's created you know, close to 50 years afterwards is this really chaotic place of all this uber creative political activist folksy drug-induced energy that basically changed music in the united states and abroad and so i i think it was genius that you started with neil young plus you know you can't go wrong with a man whose discography includes buffalo springfield crazy horse and and crosby steals nash and young i mean you could have four hours of content on each one of those bands and you probably still wouldn't do its service. Absolutely. I mean, I just love on the back of my Buffalo's Springfield, by the way, for anyone listening and hearing all the background noises and the, and the, the pops and scratches, that's because we're actually picking up real records and putting them on a, on a vinyl deck here and talking about it. Um, but on the back of this one, um, there's an actual note from Armit Ertigan, the founder of Atlantic records talking about, how he likes Buffalo Springfield and all the different artists involved in the making of this, of the record that was the retrospective that I just played there. Um, it's, you just don't get that anymore. You know, when does the head of uh, Warner music actually write a note and put it on the back of a physical album these days and talk about how much he loves the band and why he signed it, right? Well, I think they're too busy with analytics trying to figure out where it's streaming, if it's in Bangladesh or Amsterdam, and then buying a bunch of bullshit ads to game the system and get the album. You just don't have that relationship between A&R, the, the chairman of the board, and the artist. And, you know, if you followed Neil Young's career, and a lot of us have done retrospectively because he's a lot older than us, you realize that he's always been an individual. And so that note and that memoir strikes me as somebody really applauding and appreciating Neil's uh, solitary nature, because we do have a man that to this day really does things for his own personal betterment as a human being, I believe, first and secondly, as a musician. So it's a lovely touch. Right. And that's why we do vinyl even in today's streaming uh, era. 
because you get a different experience with the music. And when I think about Neil Young or Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Joni Mitchell, Roger McGuinn and all these great Laurel Canyon cats that you're going to school us to in a bit, Ben, that's what I think about. I think that they're trying to have a dialogue with us. So it's cool that the dialogue is also printed on on the album itself. Yeah. Let's check out a little bit of CSN. See what I love about this track, Vic. Um, I was actually introduced to this song not not through this version. Uh, growing up in the UK, uh, we had this thing in the '90s called the acid jazz movement. You know, with uh, bands like Jamiroquai and Mother Earth and Corduroy and all those kind of cats were coming out of. And um, it was actually a band called Galliano that did Long Time Gone. Mm-hmm. It was a very different version. It had that kind of fast tambourine '90s kind of up kick about it, and. I was like, this is a really good tune. These guys are really good songwriters. And then, of course, I found out it was written by Crosby, Stills & Nash. So, um, you know, and more testament to the fact that this was such a hotbed of creativity um, and influenced people for many, many years to come, probably still still today. Well, that song also brings me back to childhood. There is just something, there was an oomph to how those cats play guitar, brought in the drums. And we're really avant-garde, even for the 60s movement. I always found like those four guys or three, if they were without Neil, were always really just doing something a little bit more aggressive. And like, I'm not a musician. I can't really speak to it like you can. But that intro is just ridiculous. It's fat. It's thick. It's heavy. It's, it's gravy. It's groovy. Whatever you want to label it as. It's a perfect song. And I guess also speaks to the timeliness of just these amazing songs. I mean, what year is it? I've lost track. I think we're 2022 right now in the pandemic. But we're talking about songs that were recorded right around the time I was born and maybe a couple of years before you were born. Yeah. And they're still timeless. And and I do envision with the grander scheme and conversations that are happening around music and beliefs and stuff like that, that there are people wanting to rediscover or possibly discover this music the way you and I are playing it right now on vinyl. And I, I feel like what's great about Crosby, Steele's Nash and Young, it's a it's a really nice transition from the Beatles uh, show we did last week because they really picked up the mantle, you know, as singer songwriters after the Beatles. Right. And as well as all the other mentions or all the other cats from the Laurel Canyon movement. Yeah. And we're segueing through. Uh, as we go, we're, we're going at a rate here, so uh, let's let's try and keep up. But uh, we've had Neil Young, we've had Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Now we have the wonderful Joni Mitchell. Um, this is from Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, featuring our one of our favourite bass players, Jaco Pistorius. Uh, here's, here's a little blasted Jericho. It's a warm arrangement. Actually, one of the things I love about Joni is, and this is where it all bridges back into some of the other music that we're, uh, you know, more focused on normally in our kind of funky sets bit. But, you know, the saxophone on this was Wayne Shorter. 
Yeah. So, you know, what's fascinating, and I give you props for bringing the show back and doing it on vinyl. I can't emphasize that enough because when you were saying, hey, I really am kind of in a Joni Mitchell vibe the last couple of days, I went through my archives and I dug up the same record and I'm looking at it right now. And Wayne Shorter is there. But I also think one of our previous guests is also, if I'm not mistaken, correct me, Ayerto is also present and prevalent on this album. And uh, she also went on to record with Charles Mingus before he passed away. So Joni's really eclectic. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are those are two titans. Two titans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, I'm distracted because I'm digging through the, uh, the records. I, pu- I pulled out every kind of Laurel Canyon flavored album I could find. And what I was really interested by, and, and you know, the, the, the process of being a vinyl hoarder is that you're constantly thinning out. You're constantly trying to make room for, uh, for your, your latest acquisition and you get more ambitious as you go over time. Um, but, you know, I have, I discovered that a big chunk of, of my, my vinyl wall is, uh, is Laurel Canyon related. You know, I've, I've just got piles of records all around me right now, but it's, um, it's quite fun. Oh, it sounds quite pornographic, but in a good way. And, uh, you know, what's what's interesting about what you just said is I've seen your collection and I'm always impressed by it, but I had no idea. And again, I think that you are tapping into an experience, regardless of the artist, when you have been collecting records and you've been archiving this music that is almost really for our children or for our peers or for our lovers to want to experience it the way we do, you rediscover these genres or artists multiple times in your life. And I think it's just really interesting and beautiful that right now the Laurel Canyon vibe is what you've been grooving to because it's just the who's who. And for me, Joni Mitchell was always an exceptional singer and songwriter and by the way you know has a history with neil young on a very deep platonic spiritual level dating back to their time together when they were growing up in alberta so when you proposed doing a show in laurel canyon i started to connect some dots myself going through my collection and i had no idea it was so robust with the musical legacy that came out of that place so what we have going on right now in the background, Vic, uh, <clears throat> is the David Crosby record. Um, actually, one of the one of about three. But what's interesting about it is you open up the gatefold and you look at who's on this thing. There are so many amazing players on this album. Um, Jerry Garcia, obviously the rest of the Neil Young, Graham Nash, Joni Mitchell. Uh, so many players. Um, contributed to this um david geffen himself is actually credited as a performer on this thing um but this one was weird because i I remember digging through this uh probably picked it up for a couple of bucks in one of the la record stores and it's just so peaceful it's one of those records that you can just put on play both sides and it's it's over too quickly and we all love that feeling Don't mind the quiet on my end. I'm just listening to what you're playing, man. It's just really taking me back right now. Let me give it. Let me give it a little boost here. Yeah. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah, never gets dull, that one. Never gets dull, but it's just so crisp and pristine. Like, you could you could hear the players that you mentioned, even on those little guitar riffs, you know exactly who it is that's, that's setting that vibe down. That's beautiful. Give me the name of the song again so our, our listeners can can track it down for themselves. Okay, so that was uh, uh, Tamal Pays High at about three is the name of the track. Uh, track three, side one from David Crosby, If I Could Only Remember not My Name. Wow. So um, we're going to oh, – I just want to spend a second um, while we're reflecting on all these wonderful things because we can easily get carried away and, and keep going. Um, but let's talk about what we're not going to do because as we start thinking about resurrecting this podcast and thinking about – um, themes and, and ideas and people that we can we can get to interview and people who are still around to interview. One of the things that struck me about the Laurel Canyon music scene is there's so many different wormholes you could go down. When I was when I was doing a little bit of googling and Wikipediaing last night and thinking about what we were going to talk about today, they obviously mentioned Frank Zappa. You know, they obviously mentioned um, uh, the Doors. They obviously mentioned all these other LA stalwarts of music. And I just want to have a whole different, you know, perspective on this because we're not trying to cover the whole of Laurel Canyon today. We're just trying to cover a certain aspect of it that seems pretty relevant to all of us right now. Um, I want to go down a wormhole with you and Frank Zappa another time. Um, there's so much brilliant activity that happened with, with him recently. We'll do that for another show. But, uh, you know, today, let's keep it, let's keep it kind of loosely and varied and, and related and, um, you know, we've, uh, we've really covered just a, a small part of it. And I think that's, that's all you can hope to do in a show like this. Well, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about some titans of music. And uh, I shy away from the word hero, you know, because at our age, we're really beyond that. But these have been seminal artists and creative forces. Most of the people we're talking about have also been really strong advocates or advocates and activists and revolutionaries for different political schools of issues over the last 50 years. And the music is as relevant as it was when they first started making this stuff. And so happy to go down this wormhole called Laurel Canyon. Uh, so here we've got a little, little Laura Nairo. Um, remember she was the one that uh, around Joni Mitchell, um, they signed Laura Nairo to uh, Columbia Records. Um, uh, although David Geffen is, of course, credited as agent and friend on this album. Uh, nice that, you know, your friends get a mention. Uh, but clearly, um, David Geffen was actually a really interesting character because he was clearly in and around this entire scene. Um, not just, you know... Uh, friends to everyone, an agent to people and helping them do their business deals. He was nurturing the talent that would lead him to become, you know, famous for putting the Geffen label together himself. Yeah, absolutely. He deserves a lot of kudos. You know, you could say the same thing. Obviously, there's, you know, when we talk about these creative forces and these people that are still ruminating in our lives after some of them have passed along or their music has transitioned, you need to pay props to people like Geffen and Clyde Davis, you know, because they nurtured a lot of the talent and they helped this nurtured talent create when a lot of other people weren't able to capitalize. And I don't mean just capitalize financially. 
Like David was able to really pull the strings and get the talent to to do certain things. And the great men and women in the music business were like that. And it's amazing how, you know, you drive down, what, two, three miles east, you see the Capitol Records rec- record building and all the other iconic stuff. But to think that Geffen or Clive and all these other musicians and A&R people and agents, they were all hovering in these little two, three, four bedroom abodes, smoking dope in the middle of a hill. And just to put things in context about what Laurel Canyon is about, it's a really cloistered little community that to this day, good luck getting one bar on your cell phone, right? <laughs> and and it's kind of amazing because they were making all this incredible music up there and they were really being left alone. I can't think of another spot in Southern California, maybe in California besides Big Sur, that was so conducive and oh by the way you know when you google laurel canyon and you see the highway and you see the 76 station that leads up to it you'll realize that you're basically what a mile a mile and a half off the strip if that yeah and it's just completely a different cathartic world and so going back to something you said you know david geffen and all these all these hip cats that help create and then distribute this music really created an environment as well Let's listen to Laura Nara for a second. You know, I don't know how many artists have covered this Stone Soul Picnic uh, track, Vic, but you turned me on to the Roy Ayers version of that, and I'm sure Fifth Dimension and various others have done it as well. But that is the track is more is better known, I think, than Laura Nara as an artist is. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, we had, uh, you know, the 70s still likely weren't the kindest of epochs to great women singers, songwriters. Some of them made it to the mainstream, like Joni Mitchell, uh, and some like the the player you just mentioned didn't. But that's a great song. And, you know, again, to the power of music and the power of digging and connecting dots, you know, the legendary Roy Ayers covering a song that was released in... I don't know, early 1970-ish, 72, you would know better. It, it, it really says a lot about the validity and the long, uh, longevity of a song like that. Absolutely. So uh, keeping it with Laurel Canyon, of course, as we are today. Um, one of the things that I read about when I was doing a bit of Googling last night was how... Uh, it's a it's a respite from the town of Los Angeles and all the nightclubs in the Sunset Strip, right? It feels like you could be in the middle of the countryside. So I thought appropriate to play 30 seconds of uh, JT, Country Road. She wants to know where I've been. I have to be some kind of natural bone fool. I want to pass that bridge again. But you know I could feel it. That's funny. You hear the you hear the piano in James Taylor, uh, knowing he's a guitarist, right? And he uh, and he has wonderful musicians around him. Uh, it just helps you join up all the dots of all these different players. You know where I'm going next, don't you? I do. <laughs> and that's scary that I I you know we're connected by analog and turntables, but we also have a friendship and we vibe musically. But I'm gonna let you play what you what you got queued up right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. 
the one and only piano accompaniment that you need when you think about James Taylor, of course, is Carol King. Nice to hear the crackles on my uh, overused version of this uh, of Tapestry bit. You know what's amazing about this song and just about every other song you played, based on the vibe that a DJ would want to set, these songs are seminal and you could still get a party going, whatever the vibe is, with just about all these songs, right? You know, you and I are well known and uh, in our own little worlds for a lot of jazz funk and soul r&b but at the end of the day we were also brought up on the carol kings james taylor's the beatles and the johnny mitchell's crosby stills and nash and i'm hearing a little bit of a dj set coming through right now oh absolutely you know where would we be without music like this it would be uh it would be, be uh leaving a big gap in our lives but um to your point and i wondered if there was some nostalgia fest going on here because of you know, the, how, you know, nostalgic we were being with the Beatles when we were talking about that last time. Some of the other uh, show ideas that we've got going on right now, we're, we're kind of going off the path that we're, I wouldn't say known for, but, you know, that we know of ourselves. Um, but I, I'm really enjoying that you're embracing this so much. Well, I appreciate it. But, you know, at the end of the day, Ben, we've been having this conversation for many years as friends before we started doing shows and before we started DJing, like, across Los Angeles and doing all the other stuff, you know, art wins over just about anything else. So good art is good art. And so if you love music, why not give a jazz track or a folk song or an RB song or a mulatto track a break and go aside outside your typical box. I find like the great thing about being a DJ at the core and listening to vinyl is you don't pigeonhole yourself into one style of music. And I feel like one of the great things that's actually come out of the pandemic is people like you and a lot of our friends are just kind of rediscovering some stuff that they maybe had put aside. And so while we are getting some feedback and people are saying, whoa, you guys are playing Carol King or, you know, you're all about the Beatles now. No, you know, in essence, we're really all about great music. And so the progression as a, as a DJ, but also as just kids that grew up listening to record, records, um, borrowed, stolen, whatever, you know, from friends and family, uncles and junkyards across the world, led us to be really open to just wonderful music. And, you know, Carol King's up there, man. I mean, I'm kind of blown away you're playing Carol King on our show, but I love it. Absolutely. Well, you know who else was hanging out in Laurel Canyon around this time looking for some bandmates was uh, the one and only Mick Fleetwood. Um, and he didn't have to look far. Uh, Dave Grohl documented it so much better than I could possibly ever on his Sound City movie. Uh, but one of my favorite 1973 uh, hidden gems, not available, I don't think, on any digital platform still, is uh, this Buckingham Knicks record, um, originally released on Polydor. It's never been released on CD. It's not available on any digital service, although you'll probably find it on YouTube if you look hard enough, uh, because uh, even, the, even the YouTube algorithm did not pick that one up to take it down, because it's, uh, it's a really interesting historical message that this, this album was so good, they didn't want anyone to hear it. 
and it laid the foundation for what was to come, of course, for the next iteration of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, let me give you a little blast of some other tracks from the record. So, so good, so annoying to have to interrupt it. But also, I don't think the uh, the algorithm police will pick us up on this one, Vic. Yeah, you know, since we are streaming on Spotify, we want to be mindful. But after all, it is called Vinyl Crisis for a reason. What I like about that Mick Fleetwood intro is it's a, it's a relatively obscure find. And so I think you have it in front of you. Just give me the players off that track and give me the name of the album again. Okay, so it's the Buckingham Nicks re- record. It really is just uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. When they were hanging out, uh, I think she was a cleaner at the studio. He was a, he was a sound engineer uh, at the studio. And they just recorded this in their spare time. And so uh, from a musician's perspective, they had uh, Jim Keltner on the drums on a few tracks. Uh, you've got um, Jerry Sheff on bass. You've got Peggy Sandvik on keyboard. Uh, you had strings on this thing. Uh, you had uh, all, all, Keith Olsen was the guy who actually owned the studio. So he's credited as, a, as the producer and who engineered a lot, of the, a lot of the tracks here. But when Mick Fleetwood and John McVie first heard this, you can see where, you know, they were going. You know, um, within a year, uh, Stevie had written Rhiannon and, uh, you know, that, that next seminal Fleetwood Mac album came out so really what we're doing here is we're just documenting the build-up to that yeah and you know what's amazing is uh you know Jim Kettner on drum pays off a lot later as well for fans of the Traveling Wilburys Tom Petty he's an exceptional talent right just one of our personal favorite musicians but again the power of vinyl the power of liner notes sit there and learn something on a horizontal level besides just the song and know the two people that get all the credit, typical Lennon McCartney. But there's two other, four other, six other people typically that are helping orchestrate these incredible moments that, you know, 45, 50 years later we're playing about today. And that's really kudos to you, Ben, for resurfacing, you know, our love of vinyl and helping people discover new music that they can't get on digital platforms. Absolutely. Um, now, here's another obscure one. <clears throat> Always doing our vinyl crisis take on these things. Um, this this a lot, um, and it means a lot to both of us. Uh, this is um, from Tommy Tedesco's solo effort. When do we start? And uh, the man that turned us onto this was none other than the, the man that was uh, named in this song, uh, who's our previous guest, Denny Tedesco. This is Denny T's mantra. A wonderful bit of guitar playing by Tommy Tedesco, famous for being the uh, the main guitarist, of course, in the Wrecking Crew. Um, I know Denny is working on a new documentary. Uh, he's sharing lots of updates on his Facebook page about it, so I'm excited to see that wrap because we love a music doc, Vic. Absolutely. But you can imagine Tommy sending Denny to sleep with this back in uh, what are we talking here? Nineteen. 1978, this one. Um, 
probably probably by this point, Denny's uh, Denny and Tommy are living over the hill in the valley, but you know that Tommy was up there in the Laurel Canyon hanging out with these cats because he was playing on most of their records. Yeah, and just by way of context, if people haven't listened to our Wrecking Crew show with the son of the guitarist we're listening to, you have likely excluding the world of jazz, the most important group of studio musicians maybe in the history of music. Is that an over is that an overstatement, Ben, with the bands that they contributed music for? Yeah, I don't think you can overstate it. You know, all, all through the sixties on the West Coast, uh, these players were out there and, and this is uh clearly, you know, the bridge time between the mid to late sixties and the seventies was an important time for, for the identification of Laurel Canyon as a location for this creativity. Yeah, and I, I think you, you touched on something really uh, subtle, but just as, rele- just as relevant earlier. You know, decades and years, they morph into each other. And unfortunately, with, with time and age, we just lump everything together. It's the 60s or it's the 70s, it's the 80s. But musically, you know, from 69 and 70 after Woodstock, to about like 72 73 which is a lot of when the music we're talking about to the later 70s you have like these sub decade genres that are happening that are really rich and what's interesting about a lot of these cats that you've been playing today is you can tell that they're already weaving the narrative for future tracks and future vibes that they're going to be laying down and that's what i find so 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 special about the 70s and the 60s. And yes, I just lumped everything together. Like I said, we shouldn't. But you can peel it back almost year by year and realize that there are so many different threads and so many different technological inputs and ideations being used to record. And you're you're hearing the metamorphosis of these artists that were around some of which were only around for like two years or like two albums like buffalo springfield mm-hmm. right and so you you see this incredible transformation musically and culturally and also politically stuff they were talking about and writing in such a short time and i feel like laurel canyon is best summed up as a place that basically said no to anybody but you need to just relax you need to accept its vibe and you need to respect its history. If you do those things to this day, you can have this enclave of positivity and wonderful energy. That's really the antithesis of most things, Los Angeles. And so again, Laurel Canyon and the music that it inspired is really about this, this niche carved up on the top of the hill that is within minutes of like the most chaotic city on the West Coast, and yet nothing touches it. And I feel it's because of that that the musical legacy talks so deeply to us. With every song you've played today, there's a duality as well. So you've done a great job curating the show, Ben. Oh, thanks, man. Well, it's great talking about all these wonderful musicians with you. Um, We're going to wrap the show now with one final tune. Seems appropriate um, on so many levels. Uh, But this is the wonderful Ricky Lee Jones. Half the home, don't come, 
been listening to Vinyl Crisis, featuring rare and eclectic all-vinyl musical treasures. 